Get your kites flying and your puzzles puzzling. It's Toy and Hobby Retailer, the podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to Toy and Hobby Retailer, the podcast, the place where you come to learn more about the toy industry. I'm your host and Toy and Hobby Retailer Editor, Imogen Bailey, and I hope you are all having a fantastic week. In this episode of Toy and Hobby Retailer, the podcast, I chat to Ajelle Wade. She is an absolutely wondrous woman. She's the president of The Toy Coach. She was a 2020 Women in Toys Wonder Woman nominee, and she is also host of her own podcast, Making It in the Toy Industry. We chat all things race in the toy industry following on from the big wave and movement of Black Lives Matter both here and overseas and what we can do to make the toy industry more diverse. But before we get into the episode, don't forget to head over onto the Toy and Hobby Retailer website and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter for the latest news from the Australian toy industry. Have you done it? Right, let's get on with the episode. Thanks for joining me, Ajelle. Thanks for having me, Mojin. So for the listeners who don't know you, could you kind of please just introduce yourself and your career in the industry and, and where you're at? Yeah. So I've, um, I've worked in the toy industry for about 10 years. I started my career working at Horizon Group and I was on their new product development team. That was a lot of fun. Um, I got to just come up with crazy ideas and research reasons why we needed to do them. <laughs> And uh, in that job, I actually got my three patented projects. And um, so it was a great learning experience for me. Um, Then I moved on to Blumenthal Lansing, which is actually a button company. And they wanted to break out into crafts with their buttons and their appliques. So I got to experiment with new things there. And from there, I got what I still think is like my big break um, (laughs) when I worked at Toys R Us. And I mean, you know, Toys R Us was growing up just my favorite store. So I was really excited to be a part of that world. And I got to lead the design team for the Girls World brands. And I got to work on dolls like Journey Girls dolls and the craft line called Totally Me. And um, and just like Home and You and Me, there were so many brands that I got to touch. And um, from from Toys R Us, I went into Babies R Us for a little bit. And then sadly, when they shut down, um, I found myself looking out for new work. So I freelanced a bit at Party City. And then eventually I got to Creative Kids and I was with that company for about two years. And I left as their, I left when I had reached the, the role of VP brand and product. But um, during that time there, I built an amazing team of brand managers and I mean, I helped them learn how to develop products and come up with brands and, um, and I learned some things along the way. And currently, like you said, I'm the president of the Toy Coach. I just kind of built uh, this concept of the Toy Coach based on really the podcast, making it in the toy industry. And the goal is to just educate new inventors, people from outside of the toy industry, a little bit about the toy industry so that they know how they can bring their ideas to the big toy companies and hopefully get them picked up. And so you just talked there about obviously working in the, in the big Toys R Us retail space. So can you just touch on a little bit of what that was like when, when all that kind of came to an end and and how you sort of felt being a previous employee there? Yeah. Um, it was really sad. I mean, I remember I was in the meeting when they were announcing it officially and I was actually like, 
drawing almost like a one of those like courtroom drawings of the of the CEO <laughs> at the time because it was just it just felt like a moment I should do that mm -hmm. and I don't know it was really sad because it felt not just about my job I feel like at the time I wasn't thinking about oh my god what am I going to do I don't have a job I was thinking more like what does this mean about the economy? <laughs> like, yeah. what does this mean about the world? Like the toy industry, like this is such a huge loss. Like where are all those toys going to go? What's going to happen? What effect was this going to have on companies, but even big companies like Hasbro and Mattel? Cause you know, we had an understanding of how much of their product that we bought. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really hard, but having said that going through it and seeing how my friends and colleagues landed on their feet really has given me this new perspective on like, you know, there is no end all be all like you can make it out of any tough situation. I feel like at that time I could have never imagined how, you know, like what I think it was like 3000 people that were on the campus and the um, corporate office. I could have never imagined how all those people would find themselves on their feet or where they would go. But seeing how my colleagues have navigated and the places they've, they found themselves and where I went, I don't know. It's, it's kind of reassuring that there is still opportunity in the industry and it doesn't have to be with like the big, big retailers or the big toy companies. There are other holes that you can fill. You just have to be creative and really look for them. Mm. And so was that part of the reason why you, you kind of started uh, the toy coaching to, to get those new ideas in? Because I, as far as I understand, Toys R Us was um, kind of well known to give, give those smaller brands an opportunity and some shelf space um, just to see how they would go in the market. So is that sort of part of the reason why you, you ventured into that sort of area? Yeah, I actually ventured into that area because I met someone and she was like so passionate about her idea. I was at the Taggies and she was like so excited about her idea and she was telling me about it. And she was at the perfect event to present her idea, but she just didn't have uh, the right, she didn't know the right way to present it. And she wasn't uh, focusing on the important things that even myself as a VP of brand and product at the time, what I would have wanted to hear to feel like I wanted to take in that project. So it was that experience, but also just having been in the industry for so long, um, I've noticed that whenever I get fresh, you know, fresh um, employees on my team, fresh blood, you know, uh, they have the best ideas. So I just feel like our toy industry is going to only be as strong as the people we can kind of bring into it. And they don't have to live in the industry forever. Like there are lifers in the toy industry, but I think that we could really benefit from people that take their expertise from beauty or makeup or home goods and find something that's different or a, 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 maybe a mechanism or a treatment on um, a fabric or something that's just different enough that they bring it into the industry and it could change the industry dramatically so like that's what i want to do like i hope to find and honestly it's been the hardest part of building my following it's been finding people from different industries that have something really special to bring to the toy industry but maybe they don't realize how they could bring that to the industry so my goal with the toycoach.com and all that is to help them figure out how to bring what they know to the industry mm. yeah and do you think part of um, the reason – so we're having a chat now because mm -hmm. you wrote a fantastic piece um, 
called How to Stop Racial Bias Bias in the Toy Industry in Its Tracks. Mm -hmm. And that was um, essentially a five-step guide for toy businesses to address um, the lack of diversity, the lack of representation, both in their products and in their actual workforce. Um, So do you think you you mentioned there that bringing in people with new ideas and different perspectives and, and, and having those be brought to the toy industry from industries that aren't necessarily related or that you'd think would go hand in hand. So is that kind of part of how we sort start to address these, um, you know, this lack of uh, diversity and colour and representation of people, um, including people with disabilities and and trans people, non-gender binary people. Um, Can you just talk a little bit about that and how that could potentially help? That is a great point. You know, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but the fact that you're looking at people that have, that specialize in something completely different or out of the realm of norm for the toy industry. And I'm looking at them and saying, yeah, I'll bring what you know to me. And I want to help you figure out how you can fit that in here. Yeah. I think that is a great opportunity for diversity. I'm thinking that now that you said it, but <laughs> I do, I think that's a great opportunity for diversity because yeah, like you said, like maybe somebody who has a different, um, you know, sexual orientation or, they, you know, they identify, they identify differently might have a different concept for a doll that is something that we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they don't even realize that what they have is a concept for a doll. Like maybe it's an illustration because they're, they draw, or maybe, um, I don't know, it's a 3D model because what they do is they make animations, but they need somebody to come in and say, I see what you're doing and what you're doing can be applied to product. And that product can change the way that kids see other kids and other people as they grow up in this world, if we can, you know, get it into this industry. So that's a really good point. I think that's a great place to start. Yeah. Mm. And so what would be kind of some other things that you would suggest? I mean, a lot of toy businesses when kind of the, the really strong wave and movement and, and conversations were happening around the black lives matter movement, um, many toy businesses came out and showed their support, which is fantastic. You know, you want those big companies to say, yes, we are standing with this. And, um, you know, here are some of the changes that we are planning to enact. But, um, you know, sometimes the criticism of those those actions is that it is all just words and there right. is no action that then follows. It just remains the same. People take a stand when it's popular to do so and then kind mm-hmm. of and let it off. And I'm not saying that that is what's going to happen, but that is a criticism yeah. of these types of actions sometimes is that there's no follow through. So right. it, what if you, if you were just coming in to start, if, if, if the business has hired a new diversity uh, representative, right? And right. That, and their job is to kind of look at the business and go, okay, this is where we can improve. What would you kind mm-hmm. of suggest would be some things that they can um, can look at or t- or can change to help bring some diversity into the the workplace and all the products? I, I think that every company should look at it from a different perspective. I think the problem is what happens with with white people when they feel like. Uh, I want to show that I'm not racist and I want to show that I'm, or that I'm anti-racist. They, they tend to get so, um, they want to be reactive. They want to do something right now. Right. And, and because they do that, sometimes it 
limits the power of what they're going to put out because they're just rushing to put something out. And I understand that. And I've had to, I've had to talk to colleagues and tell them like, don't rush to send out this email. Like I know everybody else is sending out an email about black lives matter, but I'm telling you from the perspective of a black woman, what's going to matter more is when you send out your email, that it's not just an email about the movement, but it's also an email that's saying, we know this movement's going on and this is what we've already put in place and we want you to be a part of it. So what my first um, suggestion would be is to look at the business, your company and your company's strengths, right? You look at what Nickelodeon did when they had their, I think it was eight minutes and 43 seconds, if I'm not wrong, of of breathing and and like a disclaimer, a bright orange screen and then a black screen to talk about um, his death and I, you know, I think that that was a really powerful statement. Like just thinking about it kind of brought me to pause because it, I think that was a huge powerful statement, but I don't think everybody can make that specific statement. Mm -hmm. So I think it would depend on the company for a company like Nickelodeon. I would love to see a continuation of statements like that. And for me, I think that would be enough because I'm looking at Nickelodeon as an entertainment company and they're influencing how kids are thinking. So if they take their entertainment power and put money behind just slowly changing the way children and their parents are thinking about black people and their relationships with the police, for me, that's enough. But then what also has to happen is another company that has a strength somewhere else, like let's say Mattel with dolls, would have to do something completely different. You know, maybe they do an all black line of dolls or besides that, maybe they support um, a black entrepreneur who's already created a line of black dolls, but like heavily support, maybe heavily market, maybe partner with something like that. So I feel like every company would be different. And aside from the public actions that you take, like if you do a marketing campaign or if you partner with black entrepreneurs, I mean, obviously I would love companies to start taking stock of who works for them and, you know, acknowledging the fact if they don't have any people of color, why? And if they do, I would love it if they take another, take it a further step and look at the salary of the people of color and the women, because there's often a disparity and I don't want to mix, you know, movements, but if we're going to look at things like that, I would love to just look and make sure that the black people, the black women, the black men, the white women are all kind of being treated fairly from a salary perspective. And I think all of those actions um, behind the scenes and in front of the scenes together is going to help the movement live on and make long lasting change for it and for, for black people. You're tuned in to Toy and Hobby Retailer, the podcast. And you also mentioned in that piece as well that you personally have been told that um, dolls of color just won't sell as well as white blonde dolls. And mm -hmm. so I'm just wondering, you know, talking about, and it, it is difficult to talk about, and I can't imagine how kind of exhausting it is for you um, to be kind of rallying like this every day just to, to have, you know, representation in the industry to begin with. And, yeah. you know, it, I really, I'm so thankful that you are willing to talk about this with me. But, um, you know, I also acknowledge that we have to do our own work. You know, we have to, to it's not your job to tell us what to do. You know, it's not, right. it's not black people's job to say this needs to change because, um, 
like I exist, you know, right. and I want to be represented <laughs> on the shelf. So I'm just wondering, right. you know, those moments in your career, um, how did that kind of, how did that change you or impact you to, to be where you are today? Or, or how did you kind of feel in those moments? Yeah, I felt it, you know, it's, it's different. Cause in the moment I remember, so let me talk specifically about a time when someone said something that was just very much like, we don't need to introduce a black doll into this line. And I remember at that moment, it, it's almost like when you, it's one of those things where you hear it and you understand it before you realize what you're hearing. Mm. So I heard it and I understood it and I accepted it. And then a second later, I was like, wait, <laughs> I'm like, wait, wait, what does that mean? You know, like, what does that really mean yeah. is, is what, is what I remember sitting with, but it took me, I'd say like five seconds to get there to mm. be, to think like, wait, what does that like really mean that statement? And, and then the room is silent and you're wondering like, is everyone going to support this comment? And should I say something to not support this comment? And it, became this, I just felt very afraid, you know, I didn't want to ruffle feathers. I, you know, I wanted to be, I want to be liked and I um, didn't want to seem difficult. And I'm not, you know, analyzing the sales of the black dolls day in and day out because that wasn't my role. Mm. Um, But so I didn't really have data to say that doesn't make any sense at that point. Um, so I didn't say anything and I was, I was glad that someone else did and that that conversation didn't happen, didn't continue. But, um, the fact that it happened just, it's sad. And it's sad that it's, it's sad that someone was comfortable enough to say it, mm-hmm. you know, that is the problem. But I, um, going back to your comment about, um, it's not black people's, uh, responsibility to educate. I agree in some part. But I do feel like we have a responsibility just as much as white allies to make people feel uncomfortable being racist. Because if we just let people slide with comments like that, then of course, like children would do, you know, they're going to repeat it. You can't make it seem like it's okay. Otherwise, they're going to continue on like it's okay. And, you know, so that is just a piece that felt sad. And now I look back and I'm like, I have to say something, even if, even if all I'm saying is, I'm sorry, but what you just said is offensive to me and I don't support it. It would have been enough. I just should have said that. Mm. It's difficult though, isn't it? To look back on those moments where you kind of, you're in that position where you don't want to ruffle feathers. You don't want to lose yeah. your job. You don't want to right. offend someone. You don't want to impact your own earnings um, or your own reputation within the business, you know, mm-hmm. um, and to say, oh, I should have, or I could have, or, you know, um, why didn't I do that thing? Um, yes. And and so do you think that part of the kind of backing or the movement for um, the 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 conversations that we're having around Black Lives Matter is to kind of make it okay for people of colour, for white allies, for anyone who feels that there is some kind of, um, in some ways, injustice going on with not having representation in a full doll line of different colours. Is is that part of it? Is that we need to kind of make it 
everyone feel comfortable enough or secure enough or have um, strategies in place to say, you know, if you do speak up against something, you're not going to lose your job or you're not going yes. to be pushed to the side in the company and made an outsider. Is that part of it? Yes, I'm working. Well, I'm I'm working with women in toys, and they have like a Black Women in Toys initiative, and that is definitely something that I uh, mentioned to them that we have to build a community that will support you if you choose to stand up. Like some, there has to be almost a script, and I tried to give some of that in my episode twenty on racial bias on my podcast. Just somewhat of a script of what you could say in the situation that won't ruffle feathers, but it'll definitely make the person who might say the offensive comment stop, take stock in what they said, and maybe change it. But there's also ways, I mean, I could have not said something in that meeting, but I could have gone back to my superior later on and requested that the person who said it, you know, understand, you know, be spoken to and understand why what they said was so offensive. So I feel like, yeah, a script I think would do wonders for black people for white allies like anybody would like because this is just new territory i talked to my mom about this and she's like you know in my day that would just never happen you just wouldn't have a conversation like that like you would get fired Mm. for a conversation like that so i think it's just it's such new terrain people are not going to talk up if they one aren't secure with their finances enough to not need the job or two they just don't know what they don't know what to say to keep um, their jobs safe and keep their reputation that they've worked so hard on safe. Mm, mm. And do you think, I mean, there, there has, and admittedly, I've only been in the industry for about two and a half years. So mm-hmm. for me, this is, you know, is really all new and I still, you know, my understanding of things is still developing and, and you know, I imagine it is for most people that they're always yeah. constantly learning, but is this, are these conversations, like you just said, your mum sort of said that they wouldn't even, would that even have come up um, mm-hmm. back in the day? So, I mean, the conversation or the argument is there, it's like, oh, well, there has been change. You know, we, we have these, we have done, you know, we've done black dolls, we've done body, different bodies of dolls, we've done, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, a, a doll in a wheelchair, you know, we've done it. So it's okay. Yeah. You know, we don't need yeah. to do any more. So right. what, what would be kind of your, I guess, counter to that or, or, or if you agree with that, then um, what would you sort of say to that, to that argument is that, oh, well, we've, we've done it already. I, I don't think that you can ever just be done because mm-hmm. I mean, in the toy industry, they're always trying to redo last year's um, product lines and, refresh them. And I think they just have to make sure that they're paying enough attention to every single segment when they do those refreshes. Um, So I don't think it's ever going to be completely done, but I do feel like the way that we buy toys is going to change. And maybe if that changes more to a um, less to like a product, like the items are pre-produced, stored and ordered and more to a, the items are ordered, produced and then sent system, you know, um, then maybe there will be more room to develop new con, like more new skews. So there can be um, a black doll and a doll in a wheelchair and a bisexual doll. And there can, like, maybe there can be all of these different options in one season. Cause right now we're limited to shelf space. But mm. if things move online and we're not limited to shelf space anymore, maybe we're limited to uh, minimum orders quantities. So we need a certain number of orders to do something. I think that might change 
the development cycle, the type of toys that we develop. You're listening to Toy and Hobby Retailer, the podcast. And I think, you know, with everything that's going on in the world right now, especially around the pandemic, I mean, mm-hmm. in here in Australia, our um, shift to online has, uh, we generally have been lagging behind countries like the US and the UK in terms of our online spend and the, the mm-hmm. uh, how much it makes up of total online mm-hmm. spend. But um, in these past couple of months, it has really kind of accelerated. And I would oh, suggest wow. that most retailers are predicting that it's going to stay, that, that it won't all you know, some people will go back to just purely shopping um, in physical stores, but uh, a mm-hmm. lot of retailers, I would suggest, are making the investments now because, I mean, the, the concept of shopping online exclusively is, is you know, it's there, it's going to happen. It's it's a, almost a given that it will. Um, and so we've sort of been slowly, I guess, preparing for that sort of shift um, but this pandemic has really ramped it up for us. So yeah. a lot of people obviously have just gone straight online. What can I find? Who can I buy from? Uh, you know, and especially in the toy industry, there's been um, quite a lot of purchasing happening because, you know, kids at home, we need to keep them entertained. We don't yeah. want them on screens all the time. Yes. We we want to do some sort of education with them if, if possible. So, you know, we've seen the category really, really boom in this time. And it wouldn't be surprising to kind of see um, – the the shift to having no limitations on shelf space and being able to say okay we can do this if we have a minimum order of x uh, many pieces so mm-hmm. i guess i guess and i'm not sure if if this is your area of expertise or if you have any knowledge on this but is there any i'm just trying to think of the counter arguments and and why people would sort of be resistant to it and one of the things that i thought about was potentially the dyes the dyes are more expensive are they are they harder to find are they harder to come by and i'm not sure if you have any oversight on this but is that something that is potentially a a price difference or um something that could be a a barrier i haven't seen that it's a price difference but it's definitely harder to get it people aren't used to choosing darker skin tones. So when you say like, oh, we want to do a darker skin tone action figure, um, you, people don't know, like if you're doing a lighter skin tone, there's almost like go to Pantones to, mm. to select that people know will look right when it's in pla- on different types of plastic. But mm. when you're going to a darker skin tone, because it's not done so often, they're likely you can't get samples in the different types of plastic or the factory won't really know offhand which one will look the most realistic. So mm. it's just a longer development cycle because people aren't used to it yet. Mm. I think the issue with um, expanding for online is going to be um, uh, warehousing. It's going to be where do we keep all of these products and why should we buy so deep into products? Because the toy industry is very much like the fashion industry where it's all about trends and you know going through product quickly. Mm. So I think people are going to have an issue, uh, companies, businesses are going to have an issue with buying into like 10 different styles of a doll just to get all of the ethnicities and, you know, things in there. Mm. So I'm, I mean, I would love, like, this is probably down in the future, but I would love if um, products are distributed more locally or if they're designed to be distributed more locally so that, so that maybe you design a certain 
this doll line to fit the percentage of like the percentage of cultures in a particular area. Mm -hmm. So if the dolls are going to this neighborhood and you know, this neighborhood, like not through your opinion, you know, trolls on the internet who want to say that black dolls don't sell, but like through real data and research, maybe with the census, maybe, I don't know, Mm -hmm. you know, to find out what percentage of races or cultures are in this neighborhood and making sure that there's that percentage of dolls available at the smaller you know stores or maybe the bigger retailers within that specific store so i'm just uh, within that specific neighborhood so i'm just thinking i would love to see that you know there's maybe a company develops eight different types of dolls but only two of them are available in this region four available in another region Mm. and you know two are in another so i'm thinking that's how it might evolve hyper localized to the the kind of consumer base who is there yes absolutely and and do you think that maybe um again this would probably be more of a high-end uh more expensive product but a type of customization where you can go on and choose your own, um, you know, skin tone. You can fully skin customize, tone? customize a doll and everything like that. Would that, or would that probably be a bit too expensive for a company to kind you of know, invest in? I don't, I don't think that that could, I think that might be possible. You know, you're having me think about, they have all these like color reveal dolls. Um, you know, Barbie mm. did a color reveal where you drip, put her into I think it's warm water we have one we haven't played with her yet Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) um and then she like reveals her color but I wonder because I know there are some materials that react to heat and they change based on how long you spend how long they are in certain temperatures or how or the level of temperature you put them in so maybe Mm. that's an interesting concept if you could change that's a really good concept (laughs) <laughs> if you could choose I think I, that's so I'll good. be the next on the toy coach <laughs> yeah I feel like there's something there there's something there well Mattel you can hear me yeah right Mattel you gotta call Mojin that was good like there's something there well you know the, and and even just talking I guess is is part of the kind of change that happens you know we're just talking now we've mm-hmm. we've come up with whether or not they're viable whether or not they would make any money whether or not they would be popular there's the ideas right. flowing which is which is half the battle you know is, is having yes. that diversity of ideas and saying okay um you know that we should try this or we should introduce this and you know I've read some studies that have said that the more diverse your uh, leadership team, the more um, productive and profitable you are because you yes. have um, differing ideas that often, more often lead to a better outcome for the business. So I the agree. argument is there to kind of have a more diverse um, people in your in your leadership team, especially because you do get those, those moments, like you were saying before, where you just sort of say, um, I don't agree with that. Or, or yeah. I don't think this is the best way to go about doing this. Or I think we could try it this way and this might be more effective or cheaper or, or whatever the mm-hmm, case is. Mm-hmm. So the arguments there and, and having those conversations is half the battle. But do you think that there's something that, that a toy business who wants to kind of make some type of change today, um, yes. what, is there something that they can do kind of right away to get that ball rolling? I think packaging is is number one. Packaging and how you show up online uh, with how the models that are modeling your product, 
I, you know, I've noticed, I, and I've started making this change myself. I noticed in my career before when I would see a package or I'd see an advertisement and it was just like a white family and everything else with the advertisement, the packaging is fine. I'm like, yep, looks great. Okay, move on. And now I'm starting to notice that I am having a different reaction. And now when I'm seeing artwork and it's just a white family and my mind is going, wait, why is no one in this family like why, why is this a white family or why is it not a mixed family or why, just why? Mm. Because, um, and I think that I'm really glad that that change is happening to me because it's almost like, um, how I look at design. And when I look at a design and I know that something's not quite right and it's an instinct and it's, well, it's become an instinct. Now I'm starting to have it become an instinct where it's not quite right. If every time I see a package, come across my desk for approval that everybody in it is white. And I think that that's great. And I think I all like, I think that companies should just look at their, their line. There's no reason that every model has to be blonde and white. There's no reason that you can't have Asian models. You can't have black models. Like there's just no reason there's, um, I think that making an effort to be more representative of, you know, the world as a whole and different cultures, America, you know, every, I, I just think it's, I think that's the easiest and the most effective way to show that you welcome, um, that everyone's welcome to buy and enjoy your products. And I feel like there's also in the toy industry, it's been a habit. I mean, you know, in the companies I've worked for, everyone wants consistency on the box. So if you put like a white family on the front, people feel like that means you can't have like a black hand on the back or you can't have another mixed family on the back. But why not? Like maybe it's time that we shake up our packaging a little bit and it's more of like a mosaic of images of people enjoying the product than it is a story of one family for every mm. product. Mm. And again, that could be localized so that you can make it if you're going to sell only black and Hispanic dolls in certain areas, then you can have the packaging represent those people as well. It doesn't, you can again, localize it how you were saying before um, to to have, so that you can have consistency on the packaging Mm -hmm. with the, with the families who are going to be buying those products. Yeah. Those are all the questions that I had for this after for you, yeah. Michelle. You, I mean, it's been a fantastic conversation, and and yeah. you know, it is just great to have the the kind of the ideas flowing and the conversations happening because sometimes, you know, I'm sure you're well aware that it just gets too busy, too hectic. People are like, let's just do it how we've always done it. We don't have time to to really kind of move forward or change anything because we just need to get this out and we need to, you know, get this approved and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, obviously that, um, it can be present in any industry, but especially in the toy industry, like you say, it is very much about reacting to the trends and, and, um, being you know ahead of what's going to be popular um and so yeah i i really appreciate you taking the time to chat to me about this stuff um like yeah it's it's been really great to have a conversation with you around this movement and and what we can do here um globally as well to kind of start questioning you know why is it that it is how it is um and, and what can we change to kind of to improve it because ultimately there's <laughs> not just white kids and there's not right. just white families. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, in my mind, the, the more represented rep- representation you have, 
the wider your market grows, right? Exactly. Like if yeah. people can see themselves reflected, they yeah. they they gravitate towards what's familiar, right? So yes. if you've got more color and more representation and and dolls in wheelchairs and all this sort of stuff, I just mm-hmm. think that more people are going to buy, which means more money for you, right? Yeah, (laughs) I would think so. (laughs) That might be a really basic explanation, but, you know, um, that's my kind of take on it. So thanks again so much for joining me on Toy and Hobby Retailer Podcast. I've been Imogen Bailey and this has been Azure Wade. Thanks so much. That's this episode of Toy and Hobby Retailer, the podcast, all done and dusted. Want more? Follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram.